Welcome back to The Full Cat with Bruce Dobigan. I'm Bruce Dobigan, and this is where curiosity leads me. If you enjoy this podcast, please go to iTunes, look under Not the Public Podcast, and subscribe. We're also available on a number of your other favorite platforms. If you believe the dominant media narrative at the moment, women are oppressed by inequality while men are surfing comfortably on their privilege. As with most media narratives, there is a grain of truth to this, but also a pound of denial. As we're hearing lately, you should be making the opposite case. As Canadian author and academic Jordan Peterson has said, in many respects, this is a great time to be a woman or a girl, but a challenging time to be a man or a boy. One man who's been stressing the challenges to men and boys for decades is American educator, activist, and author Dr. Warren Farrell. His latest book, The Boy Crisis, co-written with John Gray, is an eye-opening examination of what has happened to males in the era of ascendant feminism. As you'll no doubt hear him say, boys are falling behind girls in all academic subjects, especially the biggest predictors of success, reading and writing, in their mental health, in their physical health, their IQ, and their ability to create friends. Now, why is this important? Well, as the doctor observes, whenever only one sex wins, both sexes lose. A big part of the problem, boys growing up without fathers. Mothers are usually awarded primary custody of children when their parents split up, with unwed mothers as high as 70% in the black community and 25% in the white community. That's an enormous number of boys at risk. Dr. Warren Farrell is a compelling advocate for men and boys, and he joins us on this episode of The Full Count with Bruce Dobigan from Mill Valley, California. Welcome. Thank you. I'm looking forward to our talking. I am, I am too. Your, your concern with the plight of fathers and sons has grown out of your schism with the feminist movement in the 1970s. What happened to lead you onto this path advocating for men and boys? Yeah, it didn't grow out of the schism with the movement uh, exactly, but it, it, um, I began to start to see um, <coughs> that fathers were important and the board of directors of now that I was on, um, they felt that fathers were important also, but they also, I, like, you know, um, Gloria Steinem and Betty Friedan had both been very, um, um, had stressed that. Uh, however, they, they started getting political pressure from many of their, um, their now members to be, um, to not have um, a, a situation where a mother was not allowed uh, to be um, make a decision as to what she wanted to do with the child. The, the mother, many of the mothers felt that they knew what was best for the children and that if they wanted to get remarried and to move out of the area uh, and start a new life and leave their mistake behind, that it, meaning their former husband, uh, the, the father of the child, um, they, they wanted to be able to do that. And so now had to do a political decision, which was, or decide between a decision of equality, which is that children belong equally to both mothers and fathers, or a decision of politics, which was if we um, if we say that this woman can um, has to have equal amount of time with the um, with her the the husband uh, for the children, then uh, she will be alienated from us, and we will lose some political support for other issues that are you know related to enhancing females' empowerment. And so uh, they made the decision politically. Mm -hmm. And I said that that you know that this shouldn't even be a woman's rights or a man's rights decision. This is the question should be. Do, do the children do better predominantly with the mom, predominantly with the dad, or predominantly with both? And even the research at that time, which was back in the um, mid-70s, even the research at that time was making it apparent that children do better with both parents. However, the research at that time was very um, 
was not very longitudinal because there hadn't been huge numbers of of divorces where children had grown up without you know outside of the um um the the care of both parents and so um but now there's an enormous amount of research so that in the boy crisis book i was able to include more than 70 different ways that children um, are deprived when they are deprived of a significant amount of father involvement. They're also de um, deprived when they're deprived of a significant amount of mother involvement, but that doesn't happen uh, nearly as often. Mm. Uh, how important was the the, the, the choice, the pro-choice movement to that, that direction by now? Were, were the two things incompatible, uh, the, the thing you're talking about and the pro-choice movement? Well, pro-choice is um, was certainly no. Th those those were not incompatible. Meaning that um, many women did want to, to have a choice as to whether or not to have a child, um, and th and that that came into a little bit of conflict in a, a sort of indirect way. Um, meaning that the um, that there there are two. Uh, I'll, I'll do a back step here so okay. that this this could be a bit clearer. Um, all around the world. Um, the boys are in crisis in um, in what I have seen as more than 60 countries that are developed countries. So, for example, uh, when PISA, the um, the International Student Assessment uh, Group, um, did, did connected to the United Nations, they distributed tests to um, children in all 60 developed nations and other nations. But the 60 largest developed nations that they distributed um, tests to, uh, they found that boys were falling behind girls in all academic areas, but especially in reading and writing. Mm -hmm. and, and reading and writing are the two biggest predictors of success. So that got me looking into what, is, what do these developed nations have in common? And the developed nations have in common two things. One is much more permission for divorce, and second is much more permission to for mothers to be able to have children uh, without being married. And it's in these two groups that there's an enormous gulf. The gulf between the 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 in some of these in in divorce situations and in among mothers that have children without being married, there's a certain percentage of those um, that have fathers very significantly involved. And those children are doing reasonably well or very well. Um, that that not quite as well as in an intact family, but close to it. Um, whereas then the the gulf is with the other group in divorced families or among mothers that have children without being married. There is a a very large percentage of children that have minimal father involvement or no father involvement. And those are the children, especially the boys, that are having problems in more than 70 different areas, less empathy, more likely to be depressed, less ability to have postponed gratification, much more likely to drop out of schools, much more likely to commit crimes, much more likely to commit suicide, much more likely to commit homicide. Just go on and on with every nightmare that you can think of your child having, um, more likely to have be obese, more likely to have type 2 diabetes, and just, you know, just continue the process. And in all of those cases, the children do much worse um, uh, on average uh, with a minimal or lack of father involvement. So while I was looking at what was creating what I soon came to realize was a boy crisis because it was not only in academic subjects that these boys were doing badly, but they were much more likely to have 
non-productive, to be unemployed, uh, much more likely to drop out of school, be uneducated, much more likely to have social um, social problems, uh, lack of emotional intelligence, much more likely to have psychological problems, um, much more likely to be bullies and be bullied, both be bullies and be bullied, uh, by the way. Um, and so, uh, and so again, every almost virtually every nightmare that a parent could imagine uh, was far more likely to happen with um, boys. Um, who had that minimal amount of father involvement. And as I said, there's other causes, but of the 10 major causes of the boy crisis that I was able to identify, uh, that um, the, the father lack of father involvement was the number one cause. Yeah, it's interesting. On our last episode, we spoke with Heather McDonald, who is a criminologist, and uh, she was talking about, of course, the high incident of uh, youngsters getting into trouble, cr criminal trouble, because they come from single-parent homes or, or homes that are having trouble uh, you know, with the lack of involvement for the father. And as she points out, and as, as you do as well, you know, this isn't just a personal story. This isn't just a personal tragedy. It's a story that also reflects on society because society ends up picking the costs, picking up the costs for all of this. Oh my goodness, you are more right than probably anyone listening could imagine. Well, thank you. Uh, the, you know, as you know, in the Boy Crisis book, I, I did some really um, not perfect, but reasonable calculations of the cost, the, the financial cost. And I hope no one ever doubts the psychological cost of somebody um, feeling so ashamed of themselves that they become suicidal or depressed or, um, you know, or, or commit crimes because almost all crimes are the result of people being very vulnerable um, to not being able to be productive and not knowing, having a good path to that. Um, but the, so for example, let's just take a few concrete costs. Um, ISIS recruits are almost 100% fatherless children. Um, both the boy recruits and the girl recruits. Obviously, there's a much higher percentage of boy recruits, right. uh, but they are they are they have in common both the boy and girl recruits fatherlessness. So just let's take the ISIS costs alone. Our homeland security costs and um, have um, have been estimated to be well over a trillion dollars uh, since 9/11. Uh, to say nothing of the indirect costs of um, you know, of, of worrying about um, the worry, the psychological worry about going on a plane um, the, uh, and, and being um, subject to uh, some type of attack. Um, the, the psychological costs of, the, the, and then on the financial costs, the, uh, the, the much greater likelihood that somebody um, who, a, a boy who does not have father, a father who is in his um, 20s has a 20% unemployment um, uh, rate. So that's a huge amount of money that goes out to, um, to, to helping to subsidize him for Medicaid and, um, and Medi-Cal types of costs in the California and um, sort of all sorts of welfare costs and the, and the females uh, without, without fathers um, tend to be much more likely to um, have children out of wedlock without being married. And that stimulates all sorts of social welfare costs. Plus, those children end up being much more likely to, to, to have children out of wedlock without being married, um, uh, not only without being married, but also as teenagers. Yeah. I should have said a minute ago, teenagers without being married. And so, um, so this is a cycle. 
So, so it becomes a vicious cycle. The, the children have boys that don't do well. Um, women are not interested in marrying men um, who, are, who don't, don't do well. Women are still marrying men who are, uh, especially when they want to have children, that do at least as well economically as they do or better. And so when, those, when they, he, she meets a charming guy that's unemployed, um, she's usually wise enough to not um, want him to be a father, although unwise enough to not consider the possibility that he might be uh, a great father, not financially, but a great father emotionally. Right. And so that, that, that the emotional intelligence of men and the fatherhood skills that men have are, are way underestimated and, um, and, not, and, and not understood. And no, no, almost no one, and I hope the boy crisis makes this really clear, uh, one of the different types of things that fathers do that lead to children doing so much better when there's a significant amount of father involvement. That's been the unarticulated um, uh, element gift, gift element, exactly. You're listening to The Full Count with Bruce Dobig, and our guest this episode is American educator, activist, and author Warren Farrell, whose new book is The Boy Crisis. One of the other things that we you, you talk about in, in, in The Boy Crisis is, is the role of schooling. Uh, in some respects, it's never been a better time to be a young woman getting into school. Uh, the school systems uh, seem to be predicated on, on success for young women, and the numbers, the graduate numbers, seem to show that, bear that out. But, but another of the things we're talking about here is how boys seem to be falling through the cracks. I mean, the, the Parkland episode seems to be just one of many. But uh, how are the schools missing out on helping boys? In almost every way. Um, first, it's not just. Uh, first of all, uh, recess is very important for boys. Boys need to be physically active um, in order to get rid of some of the um, that fidgetiness and that in order to be able to pay attention. Yep. And so um, we now know from recent studies done by the CDC, by the way, uh, that 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 when time spent in recess actually is more helpful to the brain than time spent studying, that kids doing recess in control groups versus those not doing recess actually do better on their tests. So uh, recess has the physical activity that boys seem to require more than girls, and, and conversely, boys' inability to be able to just go from zero to sitting at a desk taking notes and then regurgitating what they've heard on the next test, uh, boys don't have the ability to do that or as a rule um, as much as, as girls do, especially until they've done things like recess. Yeah. Um, se secondly, um, boys need to have a sense of purpose just like girls do, and girls have a built-in sense of possible purpose in, in terms of just being able to raise a child. Um, boys have to feel that they have something to contribute, and girls want boys to have something to contribute. And so some boys, our grandfathers you would, uh, that you and I had, if they didn't do well academically, uh, they did. Um, they 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 could turn to um, doing something with their hands, with Trade, their muscles. Yeah. Trades and so we've gone from muscle to microchip or muscle to mental, and um, and so even things that required um, what we used to think of as muscle, like welding, 
to be a, a well-paid welder. You have to know physics. You have to know chemistry. And so all of these things are, um, are require vocational education. And we've cut back in our school systems the amount of vocational education. We put a focus on go, going to college and universities. And obviously, you know, I have a PhD, so I'm very much oriented toward that. That's easy for me. Right. But about 25% of kids, especially boys, uh, that is not an easy route. And, to, uh, and in Japan, they've recognized that, and about 25% of students are in um, vocational education route, route, um, paths. And among those that go through vocational education paths, 99.6% are employed after they finish um, graduating from, from vocational education, whereas among boys who, who don't have that path and therefore drop out of school for, uh, and feel to say nothing of the shame that they have and the, the sense of destructiveness that um, the testosterone gets channeled into, um, more importantly than anything is that they feel that they, um, that they, that they are likely to be unemployed at the 20% level in their early 20s. Mm -hmm. And so this, and this of course, is just a pathway to destructiveness, to, uh, to joining, um, you know, to getting involved in negative activities and crime in particular. Uh, so when you look at the prisons, the prison, our prisons are filled in the United States, especially uh, with males, 93% males, and about 90% of those males are um, dad-deprived boys. Yeah, yeah I, I think you're getting at this anyhow, but I'll ask the question <laughs> anyhow. Uh, the, the, you know, there's a description in the feminist movement as men's high-paced privilege and power. Uh, but you say the expectation of men to earn money is actually discrimination against them. Uh, the great line, I love this one, the road to high pay is a toll road. What did you mean by that? Yes, and you, you put your finger exactly on it or, or, or quoted the parts of the boy crisis where I do put my fingers on this. And that is, um, you know, and one of the, the things that happens for a lot of boys is that, you know, we already have told our sons um, in order to be a man, you know, big boys don't cry. So, you know, if you're if you're upset about something, keep it to yourself, basically, is what the message is. And so we have that. That's that's a historic part of masculinity in all cultures is, you know, um, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. If you're a guy, if you do, if you if you express your feelings and you say you're in hurt or pain, um, this is really like, you know, shows you're you're not really a, a man yet and you never will be potentially. And so, um, so that's the message to boys. And then on top of that message, uh, we're having this this um, this this next level message, which is, you're a male, you have male privilege, so you you guys shut up and you know girls and women speak up because now it's your turn uh, to speak up. You've always you guys have always been the ones speaking up and saying what's bothering you, but in fact we haven't been. We've been the ones repressing what's bothering us, and now we're moving into a world where by being told we have male privilege and anything that we explain is called mansplaining, and you should uh, just basically shut up. Yeah. That's reinforcing the old masculinity. It's reinforcing that what is called in schools toxic masculinity. So we're being blamed for having toxic masculinity and then being repressed even more than we were, which makes our masculinity even more toxic. And so, but the feminist response to that is, well, wait a minute, you're the ones earning the money. Look at all the people in, the, in leadership positions. Look at all the CEOs. Those are the ones that have power. Those are the ones that have privilege. The answer to that is, 
No, that's not power and privilege. That's what our dads and grandfathers did to earn money. Um, and they, they, they gave up their dreams and the glint in their eyes of being an author, an artist, a, um, uh, an actor. You know, a, you know, a world traveler to just to 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 just find what their their desires were in the world, and they said once they had children um, that I'm not going to be a philosopher because philosophers don't make money. I'm not going to be a um, um, an artist because artists don't make money. I'm going to figure out what I need to do, not what I want to do. Give up the glint in my eyes. And then so the men who did this were valued enough to have uh, to be married and to have children with um, women selected for those men. The men who didn't do this, who didn't earn more money, they were the ones that were not they were ignored by women. And so there was an obligation, an expectation, a pressure um, on us as boys and men to produce money. When I decided I wanted to be an author, my father freaked out. And he said, you know, you can't, <laughs> you can't be an author. Authors, you know, maybe you'll make money, Warren, on one book. Um, but then you'll have a big, big gap. You, your, 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 your need, Warren, is to provide consistent, dependable income, not um, take a chance. Um, you're, you're, that's thinking of yourself, not thinking of your of any potential wife and children that you might have and so um so to call the obligation and the pressure and the expectation to earn money that often somebody else will spend while the male will die sooner that's not and to call that a prerogative or a privilege is such an undervaluing and underappreciation and a lack of knowledge. I mean, if you, no matter where you are now in the world, as you're listening to this, go call an Uber driver or a Lyft driver. This is a company that's formed just recently. These are companies that have formed just recently. The chances are nine out of 10, a man will come to your door, not a woman. Ask that man, what he or she, um, how many hours a week that he or she works. It'll usually be between 60 and 75. Um, ask anyone, uh, so ask yourself, why is not the woman coming to work 60 to 70 hours a week um, to pick you up? Um, because it's more likely that the male will be in a position to feel that he has to work that type of length of time for a relatively small amount of money um, to be able to support either the family he has or the family or make enough money to save up to be eligible to have a family. Mm. I, you know, I wrote a column recently in which, uh, you know, somebody had been accusing me of white male privilege. And, and I said, absolutely. I said, I'm proud of my white male privilege. And that and my white male privilege is my grandfather, uh, Teddy Dobigan, who went and fought in the Canadian Army in the worst battles of the First World War. He was in the artillery. It was all the worst battles. Came home and made a million dollars and took care of his family. My father flew bombers in the Second World War. They were shooting at him. My, my uncle, my uncle uh, Burke, was shot down and killed, uh, you know, fighting for the values that we stood. I said, that's my white privilege, and I'm quite proud of it. And I don't, I don't, I don't hide it. And and sometimes these things seem so self-evident to me, it, it sort of annoys me. And, and I, I guess my final question is, why is the media missing out on a story that is this broad and this wide? Because we have learned that men, you know, we have a history of knowing that men, masculinity meant you grew up, no matter where you were in the world, to learn to be disposable. 
and to be disposable, you, the way we got men to be disposable is we in war and in work is we called the men who risked their lives at age 18 or whatever in war, we called them heroes. We gave them social bribes to participate in, in, um, in, a, in being willing to risk their life um, to die to, so others could live. Uh, we all had an emotional, we all have an emotional and psychological investment in our survival being dependent upon males being willing to um, to engage in disposability when we need them to. Um, when we don't do it directly, we do it uh, by war, we do it through expecting um, males get, can get type of honor and social appraise from being a firefighter or a police officer or a coal miner or a construction worker. Um, all the hazardous jobs are populated largely by males who are willing to risk their lives. Um, in Japan, they recognize that this is uh, not just by, by working class jobs like coal miner, uh, but it's also that, that they, they recognize that they have a word called karoshi, which is death at the desk or death from overwork. Mm -hmm. And uh, people who um, who are executives and white collar workers, uh, that they oftentimes work to a degree that they will um, collapse from overwork or from st the stress of that, mm -hmm. uh, which is particularly expected in countries like Japan. And, um, and so they have a game in, in Japan called karoshi. And boys and girls play karoshi. And the person who wins at karoshi gets the reward of offing himself or herself. That is, they get, they get killed um, because, because the uncommon wisdom of the younger generation of Japan is that this thing that we call male privilege is not male privilege. It's the male pathway to death um, and it's the, uh, to dying sooner. And it's part of our learning to be men by being disposable. And so, the, the, so we don't pay attention to the boy crisis because we, we have framed the male obligation as male privilege, and who wants to pay attention to somebody having a uh, being in crisis or having a problem, who seems to be the privileged group? Yeah. And so, until we fight this concept of the that we live in a world that is dominated by a patriarchy, uh, as, instead of understanding that we've lived in a world that has been dominated by not a patriarchy, but by the need to survive, um, and the need to survive obligated both our mothers and our fathers to risk their lives um, so that they could bring in a new generation and support that new generation. And our mothers risk their lives in childbirth, our fathers risk their lives in war to protect the children that the women bore. And both mothers and fathers, um, moms made sacrifices of their careers, dad made sacrifices in careers, doing careers that they didn't necessarily want to do in order to be able to, to do the things that they thought would allow their children to not have to drive Ubers or Lyfts or taxi cabs or work in coal mines, and with that, but have more options and opportunities than they had. Mm. I, I, I liked, I heard in one of your interviews, you were talking about the Uber driver who sends his daughter to school, or to college, and she does uh, feminist or gender studies and then comes home and harangues him for being part of the, of the white male privilege working 70 hours a week to try to get her through college. That's sort of the circle. It's, it's a bit yes. ironic. It's it's ironic and it's deeply sad because men don't express their sadnesses and but the man you know who's just so working so hard morning noon and night to get his daughter to college to have his daughter best to be the first one in the family to go to college and has all this pride and then has the daughter come back and start talking about him as the oppressed the oppressor it's like 
it's so deep is so deeply sad and his heart is broken and what he wanted was praise but he's too proud to say i needed you i wanted you to just be understand how much i love you and how much i was willing to drive that cab or that uber morning noon and night so that you'd have an opportunity but i really am so hurt that you're coming back from college and 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 framing me who has devoted my life to you as the oppressor of you rather than the supporter of you yeah. it's well as i say in terms of the media i've been a member of the media for almost 40 years and 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 i hope that this story this aspect of the story gets more traction than it has at the current time i know why it ha is not getting it and i hope that your message gets a little bit a bit wider scope and i really enjoyed the boy crisis and uh, obviously talking to you here today thank you it's a been a real pleasure for, for me as well You've been listening to The Full Count with Bruce Dobigan. Our guest this episode was American educator, activist, and author, Dr. Warren Farrell, whose new book is The Boy Crisis. Don't forget to subscribe to The Full Count with Bruce Dobigan and all our podcasts at iTunes and on my website, notthepublicbroadcaster.com. You can also access my columns, my podcasts, and my poetry on that website. I'm also appearing three times a week on Sirius XM Radio Channel 167 Canada Talks. I'm on at noon Eastern Time, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. I'll post those conversations on my website, on Twitter, and on my Facebook page. Till the next time, this is Bruce Dobigan, and remember, the story isn't complete till it reaches the full count. Round, round, round.